you can open that Bible up to Galatians chapter 3. Once you get there, let's stand together and I'll read it. And uh, we'll just bow our hearts before the authority of God's word this morning. We're going to look at uh, Galatians 3 verses 1 through 14. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray. God, we know that even though we're talking about A Jew writing to a bunch of non-Jews who are struggling with acting like Jews. Uh, Lord, that that is actually really very relevant to us today in 2016 Prineville. And we would just pray that it would be by your presence and your spirit today that this is contextualized to us in our culture, in our day, in our time. And Lord, that you would bring conviction to every heart in this room to where we try to put ourselves back under a yoke of rules and rituals, regulations and religion, rather than resting in the person and work of Jesus Christ that was finished at the cross and validated in the resurrection. And we pray, God, that you would transform hearts and minds through the studying of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The Galatian churches, to whom this letter was written to, many different churches received this letter, had been struggling with an issue, had been struggling with a question, and that is, how are we made right with God? How am I given right standing before a holy, perfect, righteous judge? And that is a question that you need to ask yourself. Just take the time to, to think and to ponder, how am I 
in all of my sinfulness and in all of my failures, in my heart of rebellion, how am I ever going to have any kind of right standing before the God of the universe, the God of the Bible? In the Galatians reasoning through it, they had been taught some false teachings through a group of men that we refer to as Judaizers. And so they had begun to be tricked into believing that they were made right with God. Yeah, through Jesus and yeah, through what he's done, but also by putting a burden back upon myself of, of religiosity and religion that I need to carry out and accomplish. And so in wrestling through all that, Paul writes this letter bringing correction and bringing clarity he writes of his own personal testimony and experiences of having been saved, not by his own works or his own merit, but by the merit of Jesus. He brings correction to the apostle Peter, as we studied last week, who played the fool and played the hypocrite and had to be corrected on that same line of thinking. And now as we get to chapter 3, he's going to use the Galatian churches own experiences with God to prove that they are not saved by their own works or deeds or religion, but rather by the grace of God through the conduit of faith in God. And so in chapters 1 and 2, Paul gives his testimony and establishes great authority as an apostle and in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to start proclaiming his theology. He wants to bring any experience that the Galatians have had under the umbrella of good Christian biblical theology. That is the studying of God. It's been said that theology is nothing more than the ordinary rules of grammar and logic applied to the text of scripture. And so as we study to know God, we just need to be fair and true to the rules of grammar and literature as we come to the Bible. And if we're faithful to that, we will end up with some good theology, with true and right doctrine. If you can read or think in any logical form, you're able to get to good theology. Just as Martin Luther wrestled through the same battle as the Galatians. First, he was a lawyer. So we already knew he had problems before God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, he was a lawyer. He was an attorney. And he was on, out in the, in, the, in the city and in the courtyard of the city when a giant thunderstorm took place. And lightning was crashing all around him. And he there as an attorney knew that if he died at that moment from a lightning bolt, he was in trouble. And so he promised, I think he prayed out to St. Anne or something. He pr prayed out, if you save me from this, I'll become a monk. And he's saved from that. He becomes a monk. And he begins reading the Bible and really wrestling with, I know that I am a sinner. Even in my monkiness, I'm still in trouble before God. That wasn't written down. That just came out, right? <laughs> so he's cruising around with the bald spot on the top of his head with a nice cool haircut and a really itchy garment on, doing the monk stuff, and he still realizes, as religious as I am, I'm still in trouble. 
So he does more force, force fasts of himself. He stops eating. He begins to whip himself with whips and with strands and, and beating his body and, and trying to earn more righteousness before God with his, with his religious observances. And he realizes he just can't do it. He's on the way to even kiss the steps of Pontius Pilate that Jesus bled and walked upon as they had been transferred to Rome. And he's on the way there when he comes into a house and some other monks say, Martin, you need to read the book of Romans. And as he's reading the book of Romans, Habakkuk is quoted, and it just hit him to the core, where it says that the just shall live by faith. And he turned around, and he went home, he submitted himself to the book of Romans, and it changed the course of Christian history from that point on. As a religious man realizes, I am not justified or just before God because of all of my religiosity. I am just because of Jesus' perfect religiosity in its perfect and truest form. And as I trust in him, his obedience is put into my account. And that is how I'm saved. And it was Martin Luther that wrote, I read it this week in a book of church history that I'm going through. He said, at last, meditating day and night, by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here, I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. And you too today can have a Martin Luther testimony. When you lay aside the, the self-righteous religious observances that you are trying to be righteous in, you set that aside and you humble yourself before Jesus and say, I receive your goodness and perfection into my life to make me clean and to make me pure and to make me spotless. And just as Martin Luther, you will have the gates of eternal life flung open for you as it's at that moment that you will be born again, a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old man or old woman passed away and dead at that point, And a new life, born again, right before God. Maybe that would be for you today. Maybe that would be as we would close out the morning through communion and through worship. That during this time in the Bible, you would be humbling yourself before God. And praying to God, even right now, and saying, I want your holiness in my life. I want your purity in my life. I want your goodness in my life and your perfection in my life because I don't got it. I don't have it in and of myself. And so Martin Luther has come to know what Paul had come to know and what he was encouraging the Galatians to be reminded of. As he says in verse 1, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? 
It's just as if Martin Luther would have come to that incredible realization and went on to nail the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel there in Germany and, and begun the process of the Great Reformation period only to fall back and go back into works-based self-righteous observances to make himself good before God. Then whoever his friends were would tell him, Oh foolish Martin! Oh foolish Martin! Kind of strong language for some of you who are just starting to read the Bible, isn't it? You fool! Like, you're like, what am I getting myself into here opening up the Bible to read it? It sounds kind of harsh. Sounds kind of extreme. Well, Paul hops right into it, and he says that you guys are behaving very unintelligently. You guys are becoming fascinated with false representatives. You're believing these people who just come right in and begin to preach another gospel. It's translated elsewhere, you guys are poor idiots in Galatia. And it's not that they were unable to think. It's that they were unwilling to think. Paul uses a different word here. He doesn't use the normal word for fool, which is moranos. <laughs> he uses another word that's anoitos. <laughs> and you know, when we are behaving in a way that we are unwilling to think. It's more than moronic. It's annoying. <laughs> These Galatians had become fools because they were being lazy in their thinking, lazy in their theology. They could think, but they failed to use their power of perception coming to the Bible and letting it rule their theology and experience. The story is told of an old man who was sitting in his rocking chair and little grandson comes along and says, Hey, Grandpa, what are you doing? And Grandpa says, Ah, oh, Sonny, sometimes I sits and I thinks. And other times I just sits. The Galatians were doing the latter. They weren't sitting and thinking, they were just sitting. And Paul is just kind of waking them up here by calling them fools for not reasoning he's letting they are letting people come and bewitch them to deceive them in the english it means that they're letting someone come and just cast a spell on them almost by magic and that bewitching of their theology is leading them to not obey the truth and whenever you fall away from grace you are disobeying the truth. It's interesting as we talk about the gospel, we know that the good news is that Jesus paid it all. And we must just believe in him and rest in what he has done. And it's interesting though that three places in the New Testament, we're told to actually obey the gospel. It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? It's not just believe the gospel, it's obey the gospel. Whenever we're not believing it, we're disobeying it. Oh, Galatians, why are you acting so foolishly, annoyingly? You're not obeying the good news. You have turned away from it. Two of those three places in the New Testament where it says that these individuals are not obeying the gospel 
it goes into talking about the wrath of God that will be poured out upon them. And so I ask you today, do you believe the gospel? Do you rest in the gospel that Jesus has done it and you can rest in him and let Jesus put the perfection of himself upon you and take the disobedience of you and put it on himself at the cross of Calvary? Are you believing that today? If not, then you are disobeying the truth and you've fallen into the same idiosity as the Galatians. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. The word clearly portrayed means that the message was placarded in front of them or billboarded in front of them. So, you know, you can picture that today with a billboard on the side of the road and flashing lights and just like, we've got a message for you today. And the message that had been placarded in front of the Galatians was that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And we read last week in chapter 2, verse 21, that if you could just make it on your own without Jesus, then he wouldn't have had to die. What has been billboarded in front of you, Prineville, is that you can't make it on your own. You need someone to come and do it for you. And he has. And his name is Jesus. So receive into your poor, broke bank account the riches and righteousness of God that are overflowing to you today in Jesus Christ. Verse 1 is also, uh, it's translated in the Phillips translation. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who saw Jesus Christ the crucified so plainly, who has been casting a spell over you? The same spell is cast upon you. When you listen to even the most Christianese looking Christian counselor or the guy on the radio or the guy on TV that would begin to tell you that you yourselves are good inherently and you can make it on your own. That's a false gospel. There might be a cross in that guy's counseling office. His name might have pastor or reverend in front of it, but he's a false teacher and he's bewitching you and you've got to exercise discernment as we move on in verses 2 through 5, Paul goes on to reason with the Galatians, giving them some questions to answer. He says in verse 2, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just one thing I want to know. How did your Christian life begin? Was it A, multiple choice here, because you observed rules and regulations? Is that how you were saved? Is that how you were born again? Or was it B, because you relied and believed solely on Jesus and what he's done? A or B? Well, the answer is so plain that Paul doesn't even give them a chance to answer the multiple choice question. He goes right into, well, then why are you doing this or that? But before we get to his, his rebuttal there, the gospel tells us, even here in verse 2, that the Spirit indwells us. Part of this good news is that you without Jesus are an empty vessel. 
You are an empty glass. You're not a glass half full. You're a glass fully empty. But when you come and bow your heart before Jesus, who has been pursuing you even today, he fills your cup. He fills you up with his presence, with his power, with his work. You're filled with the Spirit. Romans 8 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit, he is not his. So ask yourself today, does my life seem to be a life that has been filled with the Spirit and the power and the presence of the living God? When God breathed into Adam in Genesis, a life began. So too, even today for you, God can breathe into your life, his presence, and bring life to your lungs. But the reasoning that Paul uses here is that were you born again by the work of the spirit or by the work of the flesh? And the answer is most obvious. The Galatians could say it. We received the spirit of God indwelling us by the hearing of faith. It was a work of the Spirit. Just as Romans says, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. And so how were you born again receiving the Spirit? By hearing. The hearing of faith. Verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? So again, a notion of foolishness here. You were made perfect in the spirit, or you began in the spirit rather. Now do you go on to relying upon your human effort in life? Do you go on to white knuckling it through life? Sweating through life? Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? The gospel not only is that the spirit of God dwells in us, but verse 3 tells us, that the gospel is that the Spirit works in us. We begin by His power, and we will finish strongly by His power. We don't begin by His power, and then, well, now thanks for getting me into the building, and now I'll just live in the building on my own. We begin by His power, we continue by His power, and we will end, and we will end well by His power. Just as Philippians gives us the wonderful memory verse, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He did it, he began the good work, and he will be the one by his grace and by the power of the Spirit, he will continue it. It's kind of a reasoning from the lesser to the greater. Salvation and sanctification it's always by the Spirit. It's never by the flesh. Now, the gospel, if you're thinking of a building for a moment, just paint yourself a picture. Many people believe that the gospel, the good news, is merely something that Billy Graham preaches, or some TV evangelist, or something like that, a Greg Laurie. And man, he preached to me the good news of the gospel, and I was born again that day, and I entered into the kingdom of God, and now I can just do it on my own. 
They think of the gospel being the door into a building. And all I need is the gospel just to get into the building. But what Paul is saying here in Galatians 3.3, which is a verse you've got to memorize, is he's saying that the gospel is not just the door into the building. The gospel is the foundation of the building. It's the stick walls of the building. It's the sheetrock on the inside of the building. It's the electrical cables running through the wall. It's the septic system. It's the water into the building. It's the roof on top of the building. It's the insurance policy on the building. The gospel is it all. And I have close friends who have left churches because the pastors preach the gospel every week. We're going to one-up that. We don't just preach the gospel at the end of the service. We realize at Calvary Chapel, the gospel is the whole service. And no matter what we're dealing with, marriage, parenting, you know, talking about moral issues, knowing God, heaven, hell, whatever, it's the gospel the whole way through. Nothing but the gospel. As the Amazing Grace song says, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far." And grace will lead me home. The gospel isn't just the door. It's everything. It's everything. And it is foolish for you today to think, Jesus saved me. When you need to realize also, he is saving you and he will save you. It's all Jesus. It's all a work of the Holy Spirit. And the minute you start resting in your good works, no matter how beautiful or polished they are, you have fallen from grace. And it's foolishness. And you're being bewitched. Watch out, Paul says. Watch out. The Phillips translation says, Surely you can't be so idiotic as to think, that a man begins his spiritual life in the spirit and then completes it by reverting to outward observances. That is idiotic, the Phillips translation says. Paul is driving home the point for us today that the Christian life is a spiritual life. The Christian life is supernatural in its origins. Otherwise, it would never begin. The Christian life is supernatural in its conclusions, or there's no eternity. It's supernatural in its continuance, or we have no hope in finishing. Verse 4 says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, the Galatians had been persecuted. They'd been ostracized from their community. In fact, the missionary journey that Paul planted the churches in saw persecution heavily in this region. In fact, Paul was stoned to death there in the region of Galatia. And so he knows that they had suffered. Now the good news of the gospel is that God takes our suffering and he uses it for the good. We can suffer and have it not be in vain. But if we fall from grace, none of our suffering will be worth anything. Our suffering will be worthless. Verse 5, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so Paul reasons from the gifts of the Spirit. 
Was the Spirit poured out upon you because of your works or because of your trusting in Him and faith in Him? How are you seeing the manifestations of the Spirit in your midst? Is He pouring out power for evangelism? And is He manifesting Himself in various miraculous ways that are incredible to view as you would read the book of Acts? And if so, is He doing it because of your labor and how you've been manipulating Him? Or is He pouring Himself out because you are believing in Him and trusting in Him? Verse 6, he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He uses a fantastic illustration here. The Judaizers would always be looking to Moses and the law for how they should be living um, religiously. And Paul says, I'm going to one-up you and I'm going to go back to even more the father of the faith, to Father Abraham. And he says, look at Father Abraham. All he did was believe in God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's a reasoning here that Paul uses that is from Abraham's source of righteousness. Now let's go back to Genesis. You can flip there. Genesis 15. It's the first book of the Bible. I'm going to make you turn everywhere hard, but we're going to go to Haggai next. No, I'm kidding. Genesis 15 one. In Genesis 15, 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house uh, is my heir. And behold, the one of the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, "This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir." Then he brought him outside and said, "Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them." And he said to him, "So shall your descendants be." And he believed in the Lord. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. God promises to be Abram's shield and to give him great reward, to rather be his reward. And Abram's not feeling real blessed or feeling like he's got much of a reward. He doesn't have any sons. He's just got a servant's son that will be the heir. And the Lord speaks to him that even though he's an old man and has been incredibly unsuccessful in having any children, that he is God and he will make it happen. Then he takes him outside. He doesn't just say, I'm going to give you a boy. He says, look up there in the heavens. See the exponential number of stars that are out there. Not only are you going to have a child, you are going to be the father of nations. You're going to have offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Abraham did not guffaw God. He believed God. He didn't just believe in God. He believed God. There's a difference. James tells us that even the devil believes in God. And he's perishing. 
But what Abraham did was believe that God was true, that he was able, and that he could and would do it. And in believing God, it was, he was called righteous right there. The Lord saw him as righteous in his midst. Well, let's go to Romans 4, which gives us a bit of a commentary on this story. Romans 4, verse 1. You're going to have to bear with me just a little bit because we're going to be reading about, oh, 20 verses here. We're just going to let Paul be a commentary on Genesis. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So even if you were able to just, you know, hard work through life, and man, I wore leather gloves in my relationship with God. I mean, I was just a worker for him, and I'm just trusting that he's going to see that, and he's going to, you know, give me something on that day. Because he's kind of going to owe me. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, if Abraham had done some works to be called righteous before God, he would be bragging before God. And those works would not be called grace from God, but rather God would be a debtor to Abraham. Scriptures say elsewhere that God is a debtor to no man. God is a debtor to no man. And if you think that on that day you're going to stand before his throne in heaven, and throw out that you were an American and a Boy Scout, and think that that just washes away all of your sin, and you can enter into the holy presence of God, you have got another thing coming. In fact, Romans says that your mouth is going to be shut before God, and you are going to be found guilty. I don't want to be in that place. I don't want to be standing before the judge of the universe, and have to have my mouth zipped, and just to be shown to be guilty. doesn't sound like a fun time. My heart's a little scared even... Thinking of that scenario. <laughs> it was Abram's belief and his faith that was accounted for righteousness. Look at Romans 4 verse 9. This is after he, you know, Paul, just for the sake of time, Paul talks about how David writes in the Psalms that so incredibly happy is the one that the Lord doesn't impute sin, but rather takes the sin away upon himself because of believing upon the grace of God. Look at Romans 4, 9. Does that blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Only the Jews, do they get that? Or upon the uncircumcised also, the non-Jews? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So if you read the Genesis account, it's in chapter 15 that Abraham is called righteous because of his belief. He was still an uncircumcised fella. 
In fact, he was uncircumcised for the next 14 years. So for 14 years, he's called righteous before God, and it had nothing to do with any religious observances of his, but merely because he believed God. He said, you're right. And that's what God wants. <laughs> then, Paul brings the scenario up. Uh, or he goes on to tell us that it had been 13 years. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith with he had, which he had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. That's going to come on in later in our Galatians study today. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So Abraham was called saved before God, before he was circumcised. And all those Oregonians that will never have heard of circumcision, you know, they would be saved as well because that's how Father Abraham was saved. It goes on to say in verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And if I can just hop over there, keep your finger there, but back in Galatians, it says that verse 7 Know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. So what Romans is telling us is that you don't have to be circumcised or uncircumcised to be children of Abraham. You just have to walk in the steps of your father Abraham. You have to believe God. And it will be counted to you for righteousness. Verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. Let me, let me read the room here and feel the room as to where you guys are at. Basically what Paul is going to say is, not only did Abraham receive righteousness from God without being circumcised, but Abraham also received righteousness from God without having Ten Commandments to follow, without having the law of Moses, without actually having the 630 commandments that the Jews were supposed to follow. Abraham was called righteous without circumcision and without any commandments to follow, which would, by the way, come 430 years after Abraham. So how in the world do you think you are going to be declared righteous this morning? By keeping some sort of law? Laws are made all the time. What if next week they decide that this law is good, but you've been not keeping that law for the last 20 years? What? You need to be declared righteous today by believing in the grace of God. Believe in the grace of God. It's the grace of God that saves us, and believing is the conduit or the hose that all of that gracious goodness comes to you. You don't believe in that, you don't get it. You believe in it, you trust in him, and all of that grace is placed into your account. Moving right along. Verse 7 says in our Galatians, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. The Judaizers believed that men became children of Abraham when they went through circumcision. 
But Paul says there's something deeper than that external thing that makes you a son of Abraham. And there's something deeper than blood that makes you a son of Abraham. He said it in Romans when we read it. It's, it's by walking in the works of Abraham. And that work is trusting in the Lord. Believing in the Lord. Romans tells us in chapter 2 verse 28. He is not a Jew or a son of Abraham who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. And he'll go on to say, it's the circumcision of the heart that matters. Has your heart been circumcised? Has the fleshly foreskin of your heart that was sinful and selfish and rebellious, has it been trimmed off by the Holy Spirit? And have you been given a new heart? John the Baptist called the Jews out when he said, don't even think of saying that you're children of Abraham and then that's what makes you righteous. He says, because if God wanted to, he could raise up children of Abraham from these stones right here. And Jesus would go on in almost the whole chapter of John chapter 8 to tell the Jew, Jewish Pharisees who were resting in their own righteousness. And he said, you know what? You think you're of your father Abraham? but you don't do the works of your father Abraham. You know what father you're following? The devil. Because he's been a deceiver from the beginning. You're a son of whoever you follow. Are you following your father Abraham who believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? You know, Jesus tells a parable and he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee who was just so polished and so religious looking, and man, that guy is a good Christian. And the other guy that went was a tax collector, frowned upon by the Jews. You know, maybe the, the bartender of our day, or the bouncer at a nightclub, or something, you know, just kind of like, oh, that doesn't seem very good, you know, whatever. And they both went to pray in the temple. And the Pharisee said, oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, like that sicko over there. I fast two times a week. I give alms of all that I possess, and I do this and I do that, and I'm just a pretty good person. And then it flashes over to the uh, tax collector, kind of the scumbag of the earth, who falls before God and says, have mercy on me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of those two do you think goes away to their house righteous that day? It's the one who rests not in their own righteousness but to the one who says, have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. Verse 8 says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. By the way, if you're not a Jew here today, you're a Gentile. Welcome Gentiles. Any Jews here in our midst? Didn't think so. It's kind of rare in Prineville. <laughs> the Bible saw that God would justify the Gentiles through faith, not by being circumcised, like the Jews. It preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. It was the plan of God from the beginning that the Gentiles would be saved by grace through faith. And it pre I love this, man. We read Galatians together on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, and this just stuck out to me. I love that the Bible preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. 
by telling him the gospel is that the whole world is going to be saved through Jesus Christ by his grace. That was preached to Abraham when it said, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. That word preached beforehand is pro-evangelism in the Greek. I'm kind of tailoring it a little bit there, but pro-evangelism. It was preached before so that the whole world might be saved. That all ethnicities would be saved. That all families could be saved. Every family, every people, even the smallest people group, every tribe, every language group, they will come to know the blessings of the Lord Jesus. And you guys have heard it, if you've been in this church more than a month and a half, you've heard that in the book of Revelation, we see in chapter 5, that there's a group of people that are worshiping Jesus, saying, worthy are you, lamb that was slain, because you've redeemed us. And you've redeemed us from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every language. That's so exciting. Because that shows that that work has been done at the end of the world. And here we live in the middle of it all. And if you've been going to this church long, you know that the statistics are that about half of the world's population has ever heard about Jesus. Only half of the world's population, half of some 7 billion people have never heard of Jesus before. And half of that have never even heard of his name and no one's even trying to get the message of Jesus out there. That means that there's some 3.5 billion people in this world who've not heard of the blessings of Abraham that we can be made righteous before our creator by believing in Jesus. And God changed that. God changed that and God used our church to help change that statistic so that maybe within our lifetime, 100% of the world has at least heard of Jesus has at least heard of the saving work of the Son of God to redeem sinners and to be glorified in the process. Verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. We're going to close out by just kind of scanning the rest of our four verses here. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you are trying today to continue to be right before God by just keeping the law, you are cursed. Because if you're going to try to be saved by doing all of the law, you cannot break a single one of them. James tells us if you break a single one of them, you're guilty of breaking all of them. Let me just tell you, if you're in this room and you're 10 years old or older, you've already broke at least one, okay? In fact, the Bible tells us that it's in our genes, it's in our family line that we've already broke it and broke many of them. You're doomed. It's like you're going to try to cross a river, the Golden Gate Bridge is there, but it's broken off a third of the way and you'll never make it across, You'll die, you'll be cursed by trying to make it across this river, across this bay, because the bridge is out. If you're going to try to make it, the bridge has got to be all the way in the whole way. But it's broken off like three feet from the shoreline. You're doomed. You're under the curse. Verse 
11 says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. In a court of law, it is absolute evident that you will not be righteous or innocent in the court of law by trying to be a good person. The evidence for every person is that you are condemned. It's evident. And if you're honest and let the Holy Spirit show you in your heart today, you know that it's evident. I started reading, and it's one of the most famous um, works uh, by our church forefathers, uh, by Jonathan Edwards, and it's called Justification by Faith. And I just started reading it yesterday, but this phrase came out to me. A person is to be justified when he is approved of God as free from the guilt of sin and its deserved punishments. And as having that righteousness belonging to him that entitles to the reward of life. He goes on to say, the judge looking on the man is not only free from any obligation to punishment, but also as just and righteous and so entitled to a positive reward. What Edwards is saying there is, for a judge to look on you and call you justified, it means that you are innocent and no punishment should be given to you. But the biblical concept of that goes even further to not only should no punishment be given to you, but reward should actually be given to you because you are actually righteous. And that's the good news of the gospel. You're not just set at a zero balance bank account. Your debt has been forgiven. Oh good, I'm debt free. The good news of the gospel is that you are rich now. Through Jesus, you are rich. And that is the legal concept of justification. Not only do you get, not get sent to the electric chair or the hangman's noose because of all the junk that you've done, you don't just get set free. You get set free being made an heir of the billionaire of the world. And that is the concept of justification. And it will not be placed upon you by your works, but rather by God's grace. We are justified not by any manner of goodliness on our part or godliness on our part, but the goodliness and godliness of God. A reason for that is shown clearly not only from Abraham's life, but from the prophet Habakkuk that tells us the just shall live by faith. It's the same phrase that set Martin Luther free and brought him to salvation in the grace of God. It's evident and it's clear. Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. We're saved by grace through faith. The law is not faith. The law is not the conduit, the hose to bring us the grace of God. The law is works and the law would make God a debtor to us. However, however, faith and trusting is God, Romans 4, 4 through 5 tells us, that believing and having faith is not a work. It's not a work that brings us merit. It's something that God has begun to work in our heart 
that we would trust in him and he gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. Verse 13, coming from this concept of if you're going to try to make it on your own, you're cursed already. You don't make it halfway across the bay. You don't make it a quarter of the way across the bay. You go hauling off trying to make it into that river and splat, you're cursed. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for it, for us. He became the bridge for us. It's through Jesus that we'll make it to the other side. He is the bridge. And it says that he was the one that was condemned. Uh, he, he redeemed us from the curse because he became a curse for us. And how did he become a curse for us? To quote from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. How did Jesus become the curse for us? He hung on the tree. He was pinned to the cross. That cross that was known to the Romans and to the Jews alike to be the most excruciating, humiliating form of execution that had ever been created. As the victim would lay there naked in front of people on a roadway or a highway where people could spit upon them and mock them as they're in excruciating pain. The beasts would come out of the wilderness and we'd begin nibbling and gnawing on the people as they're hanging there. It is a cursed thing to be there on the cross. Jesus became that curse for us. But Jesus said in John chapter 3, just as Moses rose up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness, and anyone who'd been bitten by a snake who was perishing could look at that serpent, the bronze serpent, and be healed from their diseases. And so many people said, I ain't looking at no bronze snake on a tree. I'd rather die of a snake bite. But the people that would look up, even though it seems so foolish, look up to the serpent on the tree and will be healed of the snake bite curse. Jesus says, it's a picture of me. I'm the one that's going to be hanging on the tree. And if anyone would look to me, they'll be healed from their curses and from their diseases. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us when he died at the cross of Calvary. And so for you, Prineville, how foolish of you to go back to your self-righteousness when today, Christ has plainly and clearly been billboarded in front of you as crucified. He died for you. And we're going to close with worship, and we're going to close with communion, where we take a couple elements. We take a little cup of grape juice, and we take a little cracker. And Jesus has ordained this to be a symbol of him being a curse for us, so that we wouldn't be cursed. He became cursed for us so that we could be made righteous. It's evident in Abraham. It's evident in Habakkuk. It's evident in Deuteronomy. You can't do it. So he did. And as we take communion, you can take the cracker and you can hold it for a second and just think about how, man, Jesus is the bread of life. You can think about how Jesus was split and broken and 
wounded for our transgressions. You can hold that piece of bread and ponder today how Jesus' body was the sponge that absorbed the wrath of God against sin and sinners. And you put that in your mouth and you let your teeth do a crushing work on that bread. And you remember that that's what Jesus went through for you to be saved of your sins. And then you take that cup and you let it go down the hatch and you ponder how Jesus' blood was willingly spilled and poured out to wash away your sins, to what the Bible says, atone for your sins, which means to forgive your sins. And not only that, the Bible tells us that his blood was the purchase price that bought us and ransomed us off of the auction block of slavery to sin and death. When you drink the cup today, you're taking into your innermost being that Jesus has taken the wrath of God. He's paid for our sins. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's purchased us from the slavery of sin and death. And he's adopted us into his family to be sons and daughters of God and to be heirs of the riches and blessings of God in Christ Jesus. As we close in this song, come forward as you are uh, ready. Grab the elements. You can go to your seats. You can just kneel where there's a place to kneel. You can ponder those things before God. You can remember what Jesus has done and you can partake in your own time as we close today.